So that's what happened. That's what I did. And uh, let's just play baseball, not fight, I guess. I don't know. Welcome to episode 1258 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. I did it. I went climbing. My first ever climbing experience. Yes, it went Wait, well. again? Well, or... Jesse had gone Jesse had herself. gone before. I remember. Yes. I remember the details. Okay. came back <laughs> grievously wounded with blisters yep. everywhere. Nonetheless, she went back for a, a second time, and I accompanied her, and it was fun. There's a place in the city that is, like, directly under the Brooklyn Bridge, uh-huh. and it's a, an outdoor climbing facility. There's a, a wall, a bunch of walls with color-coded hand grips that uh-huh. indicate the difficulty of the route, and uh, I enjoyed it. And my hands are not too terribly wounded. I have calluses from lifting, and they're not necessarily in the same place on your finger and so by the time we wrapped up I could feel some sensitivity developing and I was like okay we better get out of here before I hurt myself but it was good I liked it yeah right you get the calluses from lifting below the fingers but from climbing right. all over the fingers <laughs> yes so, everywhere to the point where yeah you're if you if you keep it up your hands are going to be like twice as thick and like a disgusting way but it's okay <laughs> because sometimes they peel so was it uh, yeah. was it free climbing was it bouldering or did you have ropes I did not have ropes, but it was not super high, and mm-hmm. the floor was kind of padded. They they said it was, like, not the, the best padding. It was just <laughs> kind of, uh, I guess usually they have, like, mats that are very bouncy, not at this place so much. It was just kind of, like, almost like packing chips, sort of, like packing oh. peanuts. Not really that, but sort of, like, just kind of a, a springy surface, so if you were to fall it probably wouldn't hurt too badly but yeah there were no ropes and it was just the these standing walls i don't know how 10 15 feet or whatever and you just uh, had to go up and put both your hands on the top of the wall and then find your way down again yeah it's like you were climbing above a ball pit and yeah the uh, mm-hmm. sometimes it's it is uh, when you when you go bouldering outside what people will generally bring is something called a crash pad which is like mm. essentially a slightly bigger yoga mat that you put on the sometimes lopsided ground under like okay. sometimes the the angular sticky outy rock. So it, it really doesn't look quite as safe. Basically, don't if you're outside, don't don't fall. But the, sometimes yeah. people do do the uh, the deep water climbing, which is uh, when you're just mm-hmm. climbing rock that like comes out of the water. That one's kind of fun. And I I remain stubbornly insistent that I think that some pitchers could benefit from not like climbing super hard during the off season, mm-hmm. but just like climbing up to a certain level because not only is it good for your flexibility but i feel like it's probably good for like your forearms and definitely your shoulders so i think that Can it would you be imagine a... the blisters if rich hill climbed <laughs> it's, just, it's like he's just handling hot plates for like most of his life so yeah there's certain players who you think whoa let's we're gonna pack off from the the really grippy when you get like a new handhold at the climbing gym before like human oils wear them down they're like really yeah. tactile and it's like climbing on sandpaper it's 
miserable, mm. but at least you know that you won't fall, or if you do fall, you'll leave half of your skin on the hold, which is essentially mm-hmm. like staying on the wall. If you fall, mm-hmm. but a lot of your DNA is still on the wall, like you didn't really <laughs> fail, I think. Yeah. Anyway, are you going to do it again? Yeah, I think so. It's funny, by the end of it, your fingers are so tired and your hands are so sore that the things that you did really easily at the beginning seem impossible. <laughs> like, <laughs> by the end, I was just, you know, trying to finish with a, a couple easy ones, and they were just grueling because my fingers were so exhausted. So, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a weird <laughs> way to wear yourself out because it's like a really unfamiliar sort of fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, that happened. I'll keep you posted on my progress. So I wanted to talk about the Mets-Phillies game on Thursday. The Mets won 24-4. They won this game by 20 runs. It was, I think, the first game of a doubleheader. It was. Yeah, not not fun for the Phillies to lose 24-4 and then have to play again immediately after that. Or, I don't know, maybe mentally it's better to just get right back out there after you get trounced like that. It was the biggest margin of victory in Mets history. Jacob deGrom had to be wondering, where was this when (laughs) I pitch? (laughs) Why doesn't this happen to me? And uh, by the way, Jacob deGrom has seven wins and 7.3 wins of every placement. So he is still doing it, still outwarring his win total. Yeah, but he's won his last two, so it's frustrating. Yes, I know. That's true. And the Mets are hitting now, so I don't know if he can keep up this not winning pace. But... Phillies did win the second game, so they bounced right back. But the interesting thing in this game, first of all, 24-4, the Phillies were attempting to set some scoregami here, as we were talking about on a recent email episode. We were looking for scores that have not been achieved in a Major League Baseball game, and 24-4, it has happened, but it is pretty rare. It has happened, well, let's see, I guess six times in Major League Baseball history. I think I saw Tyler Kepner looked it up, and it hadn't happened since 1940 or something. So, been a while, but uh, not scoregami. You'd have to have 25 to nothing. That would be a unique score. 25 to 9, that would work. 23 to 11, that would do it. Anyway, they didn't come close on that. But the fascinating thing was that the Phillies used two position player pitchers. Okay, that happens all the time now. Roman Quinn and then Scott Kingery. Scott Kingery, I don't know whether you saw, Quinn got Mm -hmm. creamed. Quinn gave up, I think, seven runs. And then Kingery came in for the last four outs, and he pitched pretty well. He only gave up two runs, and I think he threw 16 pitches, and 13 of them were strikes. That is a good ratio, except that he was throwing so slow that StatCast could not track any of his pitches. <laughs> I looked at the game feed for this game on Baseball Savant and not a single pitch by Scott Kingery was tracked by the system. If you look at the highlights, if you look at the gifts, it's like the slowest pitch you've ever seen in a game. I think we answered on a recent email episode, what's the slowest pitch ever to be thrown for a strike? And we were saying it's a hard question to answer, A, because there are all sorts of data errors. So there are pitches that say they were 40-something, but they weren't actually 40-something. And then if you throw a really, really slow pitch, it just won't even be recorded. So... I think Scott Kingery last night, he threw a pitch, and I'll link to the gif for anyone who hasn't seen it, but Ben Harris, who writes for The Athletic, and I think is a listener who heard our conversation about this, says, Scott Kingery testing the limits of how soft you can throw a pitch and still put it in the strike zone. 
And Jeremy Frank, who is at MLB Random Stats on Twitter, he said, this pitch was in the air for over a second. The average velocity (laughs) was around 38 miles per hour based on some quick timing and math. So we talked recently about what the slowest possible pitch you could throw for a strike, just physically, how slow could you throw a pitch that actually would make it into the strike zone? And our listener and physics expert, Andrew Dominiani, determined that it was about 27.5 miles per hour. That is the, the lower bound on how slow you can throw a strike. So Kingery, if he was at 38, he was less than 10 miles per hour over the limit here. And I sent this to Andrew and he said, wow, if 38 miles per hour is correct, based on where it's caught, it seems like he could have gone slower. The hypothetical 27.5 mile per hour slow pitch reaches almost 20 feet off the ground at its apex. This one looks like it doesn't get much over 12 to 13. So if he had lobbed it, if he had increased his launch angle and just softly dropped it in there, he could have sacrificed even more speed. But Scott Kingery coming close to the slowest possible strike. All right, there's a few things to point out here. So first of all, you were talking about Jacob deGrom. So the Mets, as you said, scored 24 runs in the first half of a doubleheader. Jacob deGrom, between April 21st and June 13th, Jacob deGrom started 10 times for the Mets. They scored for him 19 runs. 19 <laughs> runs over those starts. If uh, if you exit on April 16th, they scored six runs in a game that they still lost. That would have put them over 25. But in any case, Jacob deGrom, probably furious at this point. As far as not tracking pitches, it's not even just like around the 20s and 30s that Sackhouse doesn't pick it up. Like it's been really difficult if one wanted to analyze Kazuhisha Makita this year mm-hmm. for the Padres because a lot of his pitches don't show up because he throws sometimes like 55 miles per hour. Yeah. Those just I saw that show he, up on game day. He hit a ball 99 miles per hour on Thursday, which I think was 13 miles per hour faster or 16 <laughs> miles per hour faster than any pitch he has thrown this season. I was going to yeah. say he doesn't recognize that kind of velocity, but that's what every left-handed no. batter does to him. So anyway, uh, and I uh, I didn't look up any quote. I remember seeing this as if this happened because Quinn was just throwing like, like normal, but then Kingery comes in, and I've never seen that I can't recall a single position player doing that. Now, he kind of like looked like a knuckleballer if he just kind of freeze-framed him because, you know, mm-hmm. knuckleballers never look like they're throwing really hard. But the fact that he was throwing so slow was an explanation provided for why he decided to do that. I mean, if you – you can go up there and you can just toss, you know, like what what comes easily to Kingery, like 60 miles per hour probably, like no effort, 60 mm-hmm. miles per hour just to like put a ball in the zone – and it'll be fine. Then you can like mix it up, throw a curveball, whatever. Have some fun with it. But did he ever provide an explanation for why he decided to do this? Because I know <laughs> that, that I it doesn't really it doesn't make a difference. Like the idea of a position player pitching, some people would say it makes a mockery of the game. Anyway, no one's really looking for Kingery to be great. But I just don't know what goes through your head where you decided I'm going to stand out for this. I'm going to literally lob such that Jerry Blevins can hit an RBI single against me and have a good time? Was it just, there's something here to study, I guess, but I don't know what it is because we don't actually have the data that we need. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe he was just trying to preserve himself and not hurt himself. I don't know. He he homered in the second game, so maybe he was just trying to save his strength. <laughs> but uh, it was something to see. And yeah, he, he came close to what we were talking about. So that was kind of fun. It would be like the ultimate BABIP test. Kingery is such a small sample of data. But if you're like, okay, if this guy lobbed for 200 innings and he allowed a BABIP of like 320, then... Mm-hmm. And then we could really know, okay, this is really, Babib is mostly noise. Now, I don't know, mm-hmm. do you think, now, I know that there have been enough of the studies, enough of the Alan Nathan tweets and articles about how the pitcher doesn't really supply much of the power, but what do you think would be a pitcher's, or let's just say Kingery's home run rate if he played a full <laughs> season pitching like that? Like, is it too slow? <laughs> I think it might, I mean, I don't know, because... I mean, can can big league batters like homer off a tee? I think they can, right, in theory. So it's possible. And I, I don't know, Jerry Blevins got his first career hit off of King Reed in that game. <laughs> so if Jerry Blevins can hit him, I mean, he only singled. But uh, I, I would guess that for a big league batter who can supply so much of that strength himself that he would give up more home runs throwing 38, even, well, even with the, the lack of velocity. So there should be, I haven't checked, there should be exit velocity still for this, right? No. No, there's nothing. No. Oh, no. <laughs> so we have no gone. idea. But he did allow yeah. a few doubles. So, you know, maybe the exit velocity was there. But still, it would uh, it would be a curiosity. So, Phillies, if you're out there, if you're listening, consider Scott Kingery as the fifth starter mm-hmm. so that we can, we can study. We're all just here to learn things, right, before we die? <laughs> right, sure. The other weird thing that happened on Thursday was the Rangers turning a triple play And it was one of the weirdest triple plays. Every triple play is sort of strange and surprising. But this one was the first one since 1912 that was turned without the batter being retired. And I (laughs) have watched this triple play a bunch of times. And frankly, it's hard to understand exactly what happened. And I don't think all the players on the field even totally understood what was happening as it happened. And I'll link to the play. You can go see it. It's it's just a, a strange sequence of events. The bases were loaded, and David Fletcher was batting, and he hit this short hopper to Jerickson Profar. And I think that was maybe the source of some of the confusion that people thought that he had caught it, so the angels on the base pass were sort of confused. And so Profar stepped on the bag. He tagged Taylor Ward, who we talked about the other day, and then threw to Rugnet Odor, who was covering second base, and that completed the triple play. And then Odor was chasing Cole Calhoun all the way back to the base because I think the third out wasn't signaled until Calhoun left the base pass. So there was a lot of confusion. And Levi Weaver did a fun oral history of this play immediately after the fact for The Athletic. And he talked to everyone involved about how weird it was. My favorite part of that article, though, there was a a fun fact in there. So Levi noted that this was the first triple play turned in Globe Life Park since 2002 and the only other triple play ever turned in Globe Life Park. And on that day in 2002, it was April 14th, the guy who hit into that triple play was a DH named Ron Wright. 
And I had never heard of Ron Wright. He was on the Mariners. Maybe you remember Ron Wright. I remember exactly Ron Wright. He had a hell of a debut. Yes, he did. So (laughs) Levi writes, if you don't recognize the name, don't worry. That was literally the only big league game he ever played. He struck out in his first at bat, hit into a triple play in his second at bat, and hit into a double play in his last at bat. (laughs) He had three plate appearances and accounted for six outs. (laughs) That is, I mean, Moonlight Graham is like shaking his head and saying, that sucks, man, because that is... uh, a rough single game to have as the entirety of your Major League Baseball resume. Ron Wright, when a baseball reference still alive, might be uh, might be available. <laughs> only 42 years old. He's only a year older Surprising than Fernando Rodney. survived that day. <laughs> so that, that was killed him. April 2002. So that year mm-hmm. in uh, in AAA, Ron Wright slugged for 60 at an 810 OPS. He was one of those guys. He was 26 years old, so not super old, not super young. But he was one of those guys who was a pretty good hitter throughout the minors he had a career minor league ops of 816 include the major leagues he was 815 because of course he had his one game i don't remember the circumstances of why he was called up in april at that point mm-hmm. that's a uh, pretty unusual for somebody who's not even on the 40-man roster yeah. but yeah that was a uh, that was in the just before i started blogging about the mariners days but mm-hmm. when i was extremely active on like Mariners message board days and right <laughs> there's there's something that happens as you age having our kind of job and and this is not this is not unique to us this is true for everyone who's ever written about anything but the things that you take for granted as knowledge when you start no longer are taken for granted as knowledge when you get older like people who are mm-hmm. newer baseball fans they would have absolutely no reason to know about Ron Wright but I never talk about Ron Wright because I always think oh everyone knows about Ron Wright but now I understand exactly how like old baseball announcers get to the point where they're just recalling stories of like teammates they had in 1967 as if we're all supposed to understand yeah. what the significance is and we just think shut up old man but <laughs> not enough work is done to bring back the things that you knew about from like 15 16 years ago that people just aren't a lot of people just aren't old enough to know now so that's mm-hmm. one of those things that is a useful constant reminder but uh yeah ron wright maybe we should just make a point of mentioning ron wright like once a year because his debut really is one of the worst and most remarkable that you could not just his debut his major league career let's say is <laughs> yes. one of the most remarkable that's ever existed it's just like there's yes. i can't imagine how he felt after that game and i would i would love to talk to him to try to find out although ron wright if he's ever been interviewed it's for one reason one reason (laughs) only it's this and he might be furious (laughs) yeah the mariners did win Uh, the game uh they did win nine to seven but ron wright he started and he was removed in the seventh inning because the mariners probably thought we don't want to do this again we don't want to take a chance and so when uh ron wright was due to bat there was uh there was runners on the corners and the mariners thought you know what mark mclemore might not hit into so many outs we don't want mm-hmm. Ron right to get up to nine more <laughs> plate appearances yeah all right so we want to get to emails and a stat blast and you have a chat coming up but one thing that we should briefly banter about probably is the suspension for Marlins starter Jose Reina. So Ronald Acuna came back on Thursday, seems to be suffering no ill effects from being hit by a pitch against Reina on Wednesday. But I think it was surprising to no one and disappointing to many 
that Arrhenia was suspended for only six games after seemingly very clearly intentionally hitting Acuna on the first pitch of the game on Wednesday because Acuna has been hot and has hit lots of homers and lots of leadoff homers and Arrhenia figured, I guess I can't get him out and I will show the rookie that uh, he can't be good at baseball without consequences. So I'm just going to drill him here with a really, really hard pitch. And I think that we all wanted baseball to send a message that this is not okay. We've had this conversation before. This is a form of assault when you intentionally hit a batter with a baseball that is thrown really hard. And baseballs on the whole are thrown harder today than they ever have been before. So this really is no joke, no laughing matter when someone gets hit by a hard object that is thrown that hard. So he was suspended for six games, which is kind of what always happens. It's one turn through the rotation, theoretically, or if you rearrange the rotation in some way, or you just kind of, you know, skip a starter or something, it, it really hardly even affects the team or the starter. And there's a lot of frustration about that fact. So... What would sending a message look like? Because I've seen suggestions that, well, if you suspend a hitter for five games or something for some infraction, then you should suspend a starting pitcher, you know, five times as many games because you want them to miss five games too. And that I think is not completely fair like it depends on if the severity of the action that led to the suspension is the same if it is for one thing when you're suspended you're not getting paid so that's part of it now for most of these guys maybe you know it doesn't make a a difference in their quality of life if they miss six games in a season or something they're making a lot of money for the most part but you're not getting paid so that is part of the punishment the other thing is that proportionately you're missing a sizable chunk of your season. If you do miss one start as opposed to just having it pushed back a day or something, then for a starter, you're missing, you know, what, one thirtieth of your season or something. It's effectively the same as a hitter sitting out several games, a hitter who plays every day. And in terms of your impact on the game and on the team, a starter in theory can have more impact on the game he starts than a hitter typically does in a game when he's just one of nine hitters and many people playing positions. So in that sense, one game for a starter is not equivalent to one game for a batter. So I get it. But on the other hand, I think the severity of the action when a starter does something like Urania does is just different for the most part. You know, unless a, a hitter charges the mound and decks someone or hits someone with a bat, Juan Marichal style, usually it's something stupid and it's, you know, making a little contact with an umpire during an argument, something like that, that really doesn't endanger anyone in the way that a starter throwing at someone intentionally does. So maybe you do say, yeah, we're throwing the book at you this time and you're going to be out for, I don't know, 30 games or something. We're just setting a precedent here. This is what happens if you do this. Don't do it again. Right. So this is something that the NHL struggles with is how their suspensions sometimes differ in length based on whether or not the player who was generally assaulted is injured or not. And so yeah, you right. wonder you wonder if Urania would have been suspended for longer if Acuna had like had a broken elbow or were out for the season, yeah. which easily could have happened if he had been hit one inch higher on the arm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was gonna I was gonna mention the salary thing and that's the 
presumably the big reason why pitchers don't get longer suspensions because that would be unfair if they lost five times as much money as Mm -hmm. position players did for whatever infraction. Now, suspensions are not collectively bargained. Uh, It is just, but what you do run into is let's say that Commissioner Manfred saw this and he decided, all right, that one's enough. I don't know Mm -hmm. what justification he could provide if he decided to Okay, Urania, you're out for a month. You get a a 30-game suspension, 30-day suspension, whatever it is. And this is setting a new precedent. I don't know what that process would be like because he could issue that suspension and Urania could appeal it. I don't know much about the appeals process. I know that based on history, it seems like everyone appeals and knocks their suspension down by one game. I guess that's Mm -hmm. worth it. I don't know. Player, I don't know if the players' union would file a grievance. I don't know what the protections yeah. would be. This case was so, I feel like it was so egregious. It seemed like it was definitely blatant. Mm-hmm. But the players' union would still want to come to Urania's defense because of the new precedent that it would set. So this seems like it yeah. might be something that you would have to talk about during the offseason and try to find some common ground because this should absolutely not be part of the game. It makes absolutely zero sense the fact that keith hernandez talked about it as if it did make sense is just an mm-hmm. absurdity it's just antiquated thinking that i know people talk about how pitchers throw harder than ever now so it's even more dangerous and that old school mindset doesn't really apply anymore because everyone throws 100 miles per hour that doesn't really matter if pitchers actually hit batters all the time on purpose in the olden days that was bad too it was just we mm-hmm. didn't recognize it then or we weren't alive in many cases because remember a lot of our audience doesn't even know who ron wright is so <laughs> in this case I understand why Urania didn't get a longer suspension. In my opinion, he deserves a much longer suspension. I feel like in your opinion, he deserves a much longer suspension. I don't think that that's the kind of thing the commissioner can just implement on the fly. But I Mm -hmm. would hope, I don't know if this is true, but I would hope that over the offseason, this is something that the league and the players can talk about. It shouldn't take very long. You just say, look, in a case like that, it's obvious I want to set a, a far stronger precedent because someone is going to get very badly injured. In fact, they already have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. It would probably be difficult to do in practice just out of nowhere just because there is such a long precedent for this sort of action and because in those previous cases, there hasn't been a mega suspension. And so, yeah, whatever process the review goes through would probably say, why does this guy get 30 games when no one else has gotten more than six games for this? So I think you're right. You could make a case that the union shouldn't protest this, should want longer suspensions because it's a player safety issue, right? It's sort of a a workplace safety issue. I mean, it's player-on-player violence, but I think it would be better for everyone if this sort of thing were just not in the game. It would be better for all players, really. It would be better for teams. So you could say that Yeah, players' associations should support the idea of stricter penalties just because it would protect their players. But on the other hand, there is the payment issue, and you don't want to cede authority to the commissioner's office to take away money from your members. So that is kind of a tricky situation. But I agree with you. I hope that this is resolved to everyone's satisfaction sometime soon. So Larry Stone of the Seattle Times on July 14th, 2017. Larry Stone of the Seattle Times published a column titled Double Play, Triple Play, and a Strikeout. The ex-Mariner who made six outs in his only three MLB at-bats. There's a picture of Ron Wright with his wife. Ron Wright is currently a pharmacist in Idaho. I was concerned when I Googled this that Ron Wright was just living a life of 
regret and depression. Mm -hmm. One of the lead quotes here is, quote, I'm grateful for the time I had up there, and to get into that game, no regrets whatsoever. Ron Wright seems to be, uh, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just keep reading quotes here. My reaction now is the same as it always has been. I'm grateful for the time I had up there and to get into that game. No regrets whatsoever. He, uh, he of course, went strikeout, triple play, double play. If I got into one game, Wright said cheerfully, I might as well do something memorable. I wish it had been three home runs, but it wasn't. It was kind of a weird sequence of events that led to the actual outcome with different base running and different bounces. You never know. This story is even more interesting than I thought. You think of all the circumstances that lead to this. Ron Wright was considered like a good prospect with the Pirates, but he mm-hmm. had uh, he had back surgery in 1999. The surgeon removed a disc and nicked his sciatic nerve while he was uh, doing that. So it left Ron Wright with perpetual numbness in his right leg that effectively sapped mm. his power. That's a problem. So he was, okay, he, uh, he got a September call-up from the Pirates before that in 19, 1997, but he didn't play because he had a wrist injury. So hmm. that's just one of those things. He, was, he moved around teams. He was with the Pirates and the Reds then the Devil Rays and the Mariners. Signed him to a minor league contract in 2002. My leg, quote, my leg was always fresher early in the year, and I got off to a torrid start with Tacoma. Mariners had a deep lineup, but I was, I was wondering why Wright was up in, in April, because Edgar Martinez suffered a hamstring injury in April of 2002. Uh-huh. So Tacoma was in Iowa when the manager told Ron Wright that he had been promoted. He was going to the major leagues. Now, he sat the first two games that he was up there, and he wasn't even supposed to start the game that he did start, except in batting practice on that fateful Sunday, a line drive by Mike Cameron bounced off the pitching screen and struck Jeff Cirillo on his head, opening a wound <laughs> that required three stitches. Gerald Perry, the Mariners' heading coach, informed Wright that he would be starting at DH and batting seventh. In his first at-bat, facing veteran lefty Kenny Rogers with two aboard in the second, Wright experienced the only regret he would have. He decided to take one pitch and let a fat fastball from Rogers go by. Looking back, Wright thinks if he hadn't sat for a few days, he would have come up hacking, but he felt he needed one pitch to reconnoiter. Good use, Larry Stone. Rogers mm-hmm. proceeded to paint the corner for the whiff. I still remember looking at that first pitch and thinking I should have torn that ball up. Everything that happened next, he says, is like a blur. I could just read the entire article, but Ron Wright, living, at least as of last year, living happily in Idaho as a neighborhood pharmacist and pleased to have had the major league experience that he had, which makes me feel a lot better about the world. Yeah, that's good. Glad he's got a good attitude about it. (laughs) So let's answer some emails. Doug Graham, Patreon supporter, says, A headfirst slide sent Mike Trout to the disabled list last year. And a foot-first slide has him back on the DL this year. So I pose the following. How good would Mike Trout be if he weren't allowed to slide? So that's uh, kind of a good question. Because when he got hurt last year, we all said, well, players shouldn't be allowed to slide head first. It's dangerous. And teams maybe are encouraging players to slide feet first more often now. So now he slides feet first and he jams his wrist anyway as he's sliding into the bag. And now he's on the DL again and getting cortisone shots. And so <laughs> would Mike Trout be better? Would he have been more productive, I suppose we could say, this season and last if he couldn't slide at all? So These injuries wouldn't have happened, but he also would have been impaired in his other games by not being able to slide. Right. Okay. So you take away stolen bases pretty much entirely. So he's never running for a steal. He's never getting a triple. He makes a few more outs at home. I don't know how many. So he stays at second on would-be triples. He either stays at first or just guns it on potential doubles and 
is thrown mm-hmm. out more so his base running value would go down considerably i don't know the yeah. breakdown because we don't have like slide data on how often this mm-hmm. happens so essentially we have mike trout who's healthier he plays almost every single day but he is incrementally less valuable every time that he takes the field so yeah. i hmm <laughs> yeah I mean, you would figure at some point, like the team would realize, okay, he never slides, so we're just not going to send him. So he runs really conservatively. So let's call him, let's call him like the worst base runner. Let's just call him the worst base (laughs) runner. And that, we usually see that, that's like Victor Martinez or Miguel Cabrera territory. That's like negative eight, negative 10 runs. So let's take that instead of where it's Mike Trout, usually like plus five or something like that. So let's say these Mm -hmm. worst by like a win, win and a half. Now, of course, he also has some some offensive value that's reduced because he doesn't triples but that's not by that much because a triple isn't that much more valuable than a double especially because the base runners still score so let's mm-hmm. call i'll call him two wins worse but also healthier so it actually comes out right. kind of almost like a wash yeah i would think probably i mean you know hopefully he won't hurt himself and be on the dl every single season with a slide related injury so over the course of his career i don't know but over these two seasons, I think probably a healthy trout who never slid would have been more valuable because he missed 46 days with that injury last year. He had surgery on his thumb, of course. He has missed 11 days and counting this year. And, you know, maybe there are after effects of being rusty or your hand not being 100% when you get back. So that's a lot of value. I mean, 46 days of Mike Trout, that's that's more than two war right there right so or just about two war so yeah i think uh probably i would have rather had mike trout not slide this year and last year than have what actually happened for anyone out there who's curious this year according to fangraphs the league's worst base runner has been on hervis salarte of the blue jays and the second worst mm-hmm. base runner has been justin smoke of the blue jays <laughs> oh, well too bad we didn't notice that when rachel was here we could have talked about some blue jays all right andrew patrick also a patreon supporter says let's say you're a little league coach you discover after some charting of games that little league hitters are extremely predictable and that if you want to you can shift your defense to get put outs 95 percent of the time you can move your best fielders around to do this with simple hand gestures and an ipad my question is, is it morally reprehensible to win Little League games <laughs> through coaching alone? <laughs> well, okay. We've, we've gotten this question, I think, from a few actual Little League coaches who have wondered, like, can I shift? Is it okay? Can I use numbers in this league? Or is that just cruel? So what do you think? Uh, okay. Okay, look. So, okay. So it starts, <laughs> someone who does this needs to hire, like, a, a spokesperson. Like, you need to have a PR team. Because if you're the other team or like a parent of a player on the other team, you say, you're doing this because you care about the numbers. Like, this is absurd. These kids are like eight. They're just trying to play with their friends. Who cares about winning and losing? Now, if you're the coach, the defense, and you shouldn't put it like this, but the justification would be, well, I just want to prepare these players for what it would be like at a higher level. It's a cruel world out there. It's a cruel world, them, and, yeah. you know, we're not here so that we all have an equal good time, or, you know, maybe that is actually, like, the motto of Little League Baseball. I don't know. But as a coach, <laughs> you're concerned about your team more than you're concerned about any other, and you figure that if we shift, if we do all these things and we're more likely to win, that makes my players happier. So I build a winning environment, and I'm preparing these play. I'm building them from the ground up. Like, none of my players 
are going to be Bud Norris complaining about the defensive shift behind him. And mm-hmm. with the Houston Astros, they'll be open-minded because they've been doing this since they were six. So, right. yeah, sure. Maybe Tony on the other team, big boy Tony, he always pulls the ball like a soft liner, a grounder between first and second because he sucks and he doesn't know how to spray the ball to left field. Learn how to hit, Tony. But if he doesn't do that, I guess, look, if I were at a Little League game and I saw a team shifting, first of all, do we trust a Little League infield to complete a play anyway? But if I saw them shifting, it wouldn't leave a taste in my mouth. I'd be like, this is this is maybe over the line. But mm-hmm. I think there is a perfectly reasonable justification that someone would need to dress up through like 10 different revisions before you can actually deliver that message. But I think mm-hmm. that it would be okay. Mm. Yeah, I've never coached a Little League, but in general, I subscribe to Will Leach's philosophy about this. He does coach Little League. and. It's all about fun for him. He doesn't care about winning. He doesn't care about competing. He hates it when other coaches in the league take things too seriously and make it about them and not about the kids. So I think the question is, does this increase or decrease fun? And I don't totally know the answer to that because I could see how it might be fun for the kids on the defending team to be better and also to just make a game out of this and actually you know it it can be fun for players it was fun for the Sonoma Stompers I think to shift and uh, they'd never done it before and they kind of got into it as a a fun experiment and an adventure so maybe it would be that for some of the little league kids but be pretty depressing and demoralizing for the hitters who were (laughs) getting out all the time so I think on the whole it probably decreases fun now I don't know, what does Little League go up to 12 or so? So maybe once you get on the upper range of that and the kids are actually kind of competent and coordinated and are more interested in taking it seriously and winning and losing, maybe at that point you could introduce this to an extent. But anything that's just about winning or about vindicating your coaching, that I think is probably not what you want to do. So I'd be very careful about this. Is there is there any strategy in Little League? Honest question, because I don't know the answer. I didn't play Little League. I only played in high school. Is there yeah. ever any strategy that you implement, or is it just all the same, all the same pitching, all the same defense, all the same everything for every player? I don't know. I mean, at the earliest level, it's like coach pitch and, you know, T-ball, and I don't think there is strategy really at that point because no one is good enough to execute a strategy, but (laughs) maybe once you get beyond that, but, you know, I don't know that there are really any super sabermetric coaches in Little League, and if they are, they're probably taking it too far. If you ever get to the point in Little... Okay, so maybe we can put it like this. Shifting and defensive strategy starts to become acceptable. At whatever level it is where you start to like pitch the best players on the other team different, uh-huh. as soon as you start using any strategy against a specific player on the other team, then you should feel free to implement strategy across the board. In- incidentally, do you think ever in coach pitch Little League, a coach has hit a batter on purpose? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, I hope not, but... Tony keeps blowing us up. Just had to send a message. <laughs> yeah. Did you right. speaking of uh, speaking of home runs? Did you see Nicholas Castellanos's home run on Thursday? Oh, yeah. The bat so, flip caught by the umpire. Yeah. yeah, never seen that in mind. It was already a, a strange bat flip because Cast- Castellanos like swung, he hit the ball well, and then he like yeah. turned around and like flipped his bat, mm-hmm. I think, and then the yeah. umpire just saw it, and I don't know what was going through his head. Like, maybe this is going to bounce and, like, hit one of us in the leg or something. But the umpire, for anyone who didn't see it, you can pull it up. But, yeah, the uh, the umpire, uh, Castellanos, just flipped his bat straight up, 
and the Empire came out and caught it. And I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what happened after that. He probably just laid the bat down in the on-deck circle. But maybe, unless this was like pre-arranged, which I think the other team wouldn't like if Castellanos and the umpire were colluding for anything. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I've uh, definitely never seen it. So it wound up being like yeah. a, a, a two-man show, which I appreciated. Yeah. Manny Gonzalez was the umpire. We should give him credit for, for executing that play. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. It made a great gif anyway. So yeah. there's that. Stat blast? Yeah, sure. They'll take a data set certify something like ERA minus or OBS plus And then they'll tease out some interesting tidbit, discuss it at length and analyze it for us in amazing ways Here's today's step last So this was a hastily put together because I, I wrote on Thursday about the Chase Field humidor. And yeah. uh, so the humidor was implemented in Chase Field before the season. The idea was is twofold. One, so that the baseballs would feel more grippy, which I don't know if that's happened. The strikeouts and walks haven't really changed in Chase Field this year. If anything, they've gotten worse for pitchers. But the other idea was when you store a baseball in a more humid environment, they become heavier and they their coefficient of restitution is reduced so the ball comes off the bat with less speed arizona phoenix area has a very low relative humidity i think it averages about 20 percent during the baseball season the baseballs were stored at 50 percent humidity or something like that in 70 degrees so mm-hmm. using stackcast information from baseball savant i was able to see my favorite comparison here was looking at home diamondbacks versus road diamondbacks game exit velocity i think that mm-hmm. sends the message and so we have four years of this information, and so what I'm, the numbers I'm going to say are the difference between average home and average road exit velocities for all batted balls by all teams involved in Diamondbacks games. In the year 2015, the difference was plus 0.8 miles per hour. That was the highest difference in baseball. In 2016, it was plus 1.2 miles per hour. It's the highest difference in baseball. In 2017, it was plus 1.6 miles per hour. The highest difference in baseball, double the next biggest difference, and this season, negative 0.1 miles per hour. So, based mm-hmm. on that limited evidence, but still fairly convincing evidence, the humidor has, well, done exactly what it was expected to do, and it has rendered Chase Field kind of batted ball neutral. So, that's kind of cheating for a stat blast, because I already wrote about that. There's a whole article, you can read it if you want to. You don't need to, because I just told you the conclusion. But what I also did as part of this is I looked at every single team and every single ballpark. Now, I'm going to say some numbers to you, and I'm going to wonder if you have any sort of explanation at all. So I I told you that in Arizona, historically, the ball has come off the bat faster than it did on the road, and that is no longer true in 2018. Mm-hmm. In 2015, in City Field, batted balls were 1.2 miles per hour slower than on the road. In 2016, negative 1.4. In 2017, negative 1. And in 2018, negative 1.3. City Field in 2015 was the second biggest negative difference and the last three years this year included it's been it's been the ballpark with the biggest negative difference batted balls have come off the bat slower so you live in new york i don't think this is a humidity thing because the yankee stadium isn't down there with uh with city field but can you would if you saw this information would you suspect that there's something real or that this is just some weird pervasive 
persistent calibration error that's happening in City hmm. Field. Or it's just the Mets vortex of despair somehow <laughs> slowing down batted balls. It's just the, the power of Jacob deGrom's terrible timing. Yeah. Maybe what else would affect, I mean, are we talking about quality of contact so that if there were like a batting eye issue or something and hitters weren't seeing the ball as well, that that would affect things? Sure. I mean, look, it all yeah. works together, right? <laughs> if if you see the right. ball worse, then you don't hit, hit it as square, I guess. And, yeah. and I can confirm not only is exit velocity down, but I looked at expected WOBA on contact and indeed in City Field. That is also lower than it is in Mets Road games. Hmm. Okay. And that is not park adjusted, so that's not affected by that. So <laughs> I don't know. All I can think of is that maybe are hitters changing their approach in some way because it's a big ballpark and it's not a great home run field. So maybe they're going for contact more than they would when they're on the road. Is that possible? I mean, it's not like the most extreme. Is it the most extreme pitchers park now? Now that uh, PNC, Petco, right? I is think, it PNC or, or okay. AT&T? Mm, okay. Well, it, it's a pitchers park. It's one of them. So I don't know whether that would be it, but I don't know why it would be that extreme a difference unless they're changing their approach or they're just not seeing the ball well in city field for whatever reason because that's a thing in like comerica right like the the theory goes that the batter's eye is just great there and you can Mm -hmm. see the ball really well and so the same hitters will tend to make better contact in comerica even though it's a, a big ballpark too and you might not hit as many home runs but you might make better contact and there's a is there another one like that where the batting eye has been a subject of some discussion? I seem to remember something being published earlier this season about some park or another by I don't know Mike Petriello or or someone. I'm not sure what I'm remembering, but that is uh, a factor. But I've never really heard about City Field being discussed in that way. Yeah, looking at so I already mentioned expected woba on contact, but just looking at. Overall, expected WOBA, which I like because it reduces the noise of regular WOBA. So since 2015, everything all together, Mets home games have had an expected WOBA of 303. Mets road games have had an expected WOBA of 320. That is a pretty substantial difference. And looking at the fan graphs park factors, uh, City Field does indeed show up as the most pitcher-friendly ballpark by like a tiny margin, but it is down there with San Diego and Los Angeles and San Francisco. And incidentally, apparently... Houston is a pitcher-friendly ballpark now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's it's hard to remember. Everyone still thinks of that as a as a hitters' park, but it hasn't been for a while. Yeah, what in the hell changed? Well, that's a whole different sub conversation. So mm-hmm. anyway, this is about City Field and the take-home messages. I don't know. Yeah, actually, that reminds me that the article I was just thinking of that Mike Petriello wrote was about the Astros Park, was about Minute Maid, because Minute Maid has, of course, that really short porch in left, and so it is the place where you can hit some of the softest home runs in baseball, and yet it is also a good pitcher's park on the whole, and Mike wrote about that too. And uh, I don't know that he had a definitive answer, but could be batter's eye related, could be that people are trying to pull the ball so much because of that short porch that it affects their performance in some way. And uh, anyway, I'll link to that article too. You can read as he walks through it. But yeah, there are things like that that are park factors that are ways that the park affects play that are not necessarily directly related to 
the dimensions of the field. So that's interesting. Yeah, I guess when you see one of those stupid, like Alex Bregman home runs to left field in Houston, mm-hmm. a home run like that creates an impression of a ballpark. It's just the way that the human brain works. But like you, it's, it works the same way in Yankee Stadium. You see that short porch in right field, and you think, well, anyone can hit a home run. This is what a hitter friendly ballpark. But of course, Yankee Stadium is basically neutral uh, historically mm-hmm. in its current incarnation, and and Houston is pitcher friendly kansas city is a hitter friendly ballpark even though it's almost impossible to hit a home run in kansas city and (laughs) fenway park has a a low home run factor even though that doesn't seem like it would be true but it does but that's a hitter friendly ballpark so turns out home runs and park factors have only a loose relationship because home runs usually don't happen Mm -hmm. right Okay, Bobby says, I was reading the post-game comments from Kevin Gossman's latest gem against the Brewers. He credited a large part of the performance to pitching from the stretch the whole game, I believe for the first time. Obviously, the results speak for themselves. Small sample size caveat, of course. Is there a way to check wind-up versus stretch splits somewhere? Was this one of the tweaks the Braves envisioned unlocking Gossman's potential? Is this something more pitchers should try? And I took this question because you wrote about it being something that more pitchers are trying. Yeah, I did. (laughs) And I am sure that I arrived at – I wrote about this, I think it was uh, last winter or spring or something. And after I wrote it – so the the theory of the article was that the windup is going away because it's just – if you were to design pitching now – Given how difficult it is to maintain consistent mechanics in one throwing motion, I don't know why you would ever ask someone to have two throwing motions. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. make a lot of sense to me why that would be the way that it is. And in theory, pitchers think that the windup allows them to increase their velocity, maybe have better balance. But in practice, when you look at the results, it doesn't really make a difference. Pitchers are as effective if you control for everything, pitchers are as effective throwing from the stretch as they are from the windup. So it's just a psychological thing or it's just a habit thing. But we've seen a number of pitchers move away from the windup. Carlos Carrasco was the first example I could think of, but they're everywhere. And Carrasco mm-hmm. has been dominant since he came back from the bullpen when he's been healthy. And it's just something that most relievers throw exclusively from the stretch because they expect to have base runners. And starting pitchers are more from the windup. But I think that over time, it should and will go away. Of course, there are going to be holdouts because this all pitchers learn their motions from a, a low level and low level coaches are generally steeped in old habits. So mm-hmm. it's going to be something that takes a long time. But like if you were developing pitchers, I don't know why you would ever have pitchers have two motions. It doesn't make any sense to me. And if the most important pitchers are thrown with runners on base anyway, you might as well focus on throwing from the stretch. So you don't have like the, the John Gray or like Brandon Maurer problems of runners are on base and I don't know what to do. Now, I will point mm-hmm. out that in two of Kevin Gosman's three starts of the Braves, he's had as many walks as strikeouts. So he did have one gem against the Brewers. Hasn't been amazing, mm-hmm. but anyway, that's not the question. Yeah. All right. Question from Ryan. If the Yankees miss out on both wild cards, will they fire Brian Cashman and screw up their front office? Signed, Ryan, a Red Sox fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> I... No. Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't. At this point, I mean, there are a couple GMs out there who I don't know what they would have to do to lose their jobs. I'm not sure if they could lose their jobs. Like Brian Cashman is just entrenched. He is just an institution. He's been the GM for 20 years now. He's been in the organization for more than 30 years. He has survived 
Steinbrenners. He has survived even George Steinbrenner, and he seems to have kind of consolidated his power. So between that and, I mean, you know, Billy Bean with the A's, could Billy Bean, he's not the GM technically, but could he get fired? Could Brian Sabian get fired? I mean, these guys have been in their roles for decades, and I think it might take not even a scandal because Cashman's had a scandal too, right? He's been in the tabloids for various stories and hasn't seemed to affect his job security. I think it might just take an ownership change for these guys to get displaced at this point. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I don't know. Brian Cashman will not be the Yankees GM or operate in that role for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Probably. But he could also <laughs> do it for literally the rest of his life. Yeah, if he wanted to. It seems like he could. And I think that the Yankees realize that even if they were to somehow miss the playoffs this year, have it be a disappointing season in the end, clearly they have built a foundation here that really hasn't been seen in this organization since the the one that set up the dynasty a couple decades ago. So I think that he has done good work, and regardless of the outcome of the season, that work is recognized. Speaking of which, I recommend and will link to the article that Mark Craig wrote for The Athletic this week about how the Yankees have changed their clubhouse culture. They've made it much more rookie-friendly. They've done away with the hazing and the hierarchy. Some of the veterans like CeCe Sabathia have made a point of putting the young players on an equal footing with them. Some credit goes to Cashman, too, and Aaron Boone and other older players. Really good story and something that in this youth-oriented era of baseball, other teams should emulate and that Mike Matheny would hate. All right. Question from Patreon supporter Sean Cusack. It's no secret rental players have been bringing back less value in recent years due to how most teams view them. What if teams traded a rental player, but what was sent back in return was decided based on how the team performed the rest of the season? There would be a base package that the selling team gets no matter what, but the package gets a little better as the team progresses in the season. You could have base package plus one if the buying team makes the playoffs, base package plus two if they win the pennant, and base package plus three if they win the World Series. Would teams go for this approach, and would the league allow it? Or, you know, not even maybe winning one playoff round here or there, because there's just so much randomness associated with that, but... Say it's just make the playoffs or don't make the playoffs. Like if you're acquiring a player because you want to make the playoffs and then you don't, they're just uh, two different packages there depending on what happens. This is something that uh, this happens in other sports, and I, I can only speak to hockey, but I think it's in the NFL and the NBA as well. But there are conditional draft picks. Have you heard of these? Mm. So they can I know the term. I don't know what it means exactly. Yeah, they can be involved in trades, and I'm just reading a Reddit forum, so I don't know if this is going to be uh, a good idea here. But, well, I'm not going to read this comment because it's bad. But what happens is that you can have, you'll make a trade with the team and you'll get a draft, a conditional draft pick in return. And the the round of the draft pick you receive will be determined by, like, how many games the player that you traded plays or it can be can be based on team success. So, like, if a team finishes, I don't know if you can do it based on winning percentage, but maybe, like, if the team makes the playoffs, then you get a a first round pick but if the team misses the playoffs then you get a second round pick so that does exist i don't know if it can exist or does exist with players like players who have identities as opposed (laughs) to draft picks that turn into humans they're like little unfertilized eggs i guess in a way but (laughs) yeah it does it does exist so the mechanism is there from other sports but maybe this is something that will come to baseball when baseball decides to also embrace being able to trade more draft picks than you can currently because that's just a dumb rule or mm-hmm, dumb absence right. of a rule. I don't know which, which one it is. Yeah. 
By the way, there's an article up at Fangrass now by Dan Simborski about Matt Kemp. And uh, I'm just looking at his numbers since the All-Star break. Matt <laughs> Kemp has been the 12th worst hitter since the All-Star break. He has a 50 WRC plus that is a 173 batting average, 264 on base, 280 slugging. So Matt Kemp, I'm not crowing about Matt Kemp not being good. I don't care if Matt Kemp is good. I think it was a fun story that Matt Kemp was good, even though everyone thought he would be bad. But lately, he has been kind of the player that people expected him to be. Yeah, there was some article that was written about Kemp from an old teammate or coach's perspective that said, like, enjoy it while it's good, because as soon as he, like, hurts something or goes in a funk, then that's just it. That didn't speak very well to, I guess, Matt Kemp's psychological willpower. But in any case, he uh, he was fun, and the Dodgers enjoyed him. He is uh, He's bad now. He's losing playing time. And I'll point out that also... In the second half, Max Muncy has a WRC plus of 100 and a strikeout rate of 38%. So that could be ending <laughs> as well. <laughs> All right. Last one. This is from Luis. He says, I recently rewatched an episode of The Office where they have a garage sale in the warehouse. Dwight being Dwight, he challenges himself to trade a thumbtack for increasingly more valuable objects until he emerges with the most expensive item at the garage sale. He actually manages to trade all the way up to a fancy telescope. But then he falls for Jim's prank and trades it for some of his miracle legumes. What would be the equivalent in baseball? Let's say a particularly gifted GM when it comes to trades. Let's call him Perry DeHoto. Challenge himself to get an all-star player from nothing. Let's say the goal is just to get that all-star on the roster no matter for how long. What's the least valuable asset Perry could start with? Or what's the most he could get from, say, a quadruple-A player? Would there be a strategy choosing between position players, starters, or relievers? How long would this process take? Oh, man. So, uh, okay, so maybe you start, maybe you, I can't tell which side of the Adam Lind trade you start with. You either start by (laughs) trading low minors players for Adam Lind, or you start by trading Adam Lind for low minors players. But I guess you get like, you end up with some sort of live, let's say you trade for the low minors players, and then you You have some live-armed 17 or 18-year-old, maybe has good numbers, but he's like super distant from the major leagues, but he's interesting, and then you find some scouting-heavy organization that really likes his arm, so then you make a trade with that team, you trade the low-level pitcher for some minor leaguer who has like better stat cast numbers or maybe better play discipline, something like that, something that just seems steadier, more projectable, and then you just Mm -hmm. move on up from there. Now, I don't know if you would focus on pitchers because they're more volatile or if you focus on hitters because if you find someone with a good eye, maybe you can teach them power. But this entire process, Jared Apoto tries to do it every single day, but this entire process would realistically take probably like three years. But this has been one of those things that I've had in the back of my mind, just thinking like some GM is probably out there trying this like right now. <laughs> like there because there are teams that have values slapped on every single player that is that plays professional baseball. They, yeah. uh, I know this because they're outside consulting companies that do the exact same thing. And teams, I'm sure, have either signed contracts with that company or they have their own numbers. Every single mm-hmm. player in baseball has a value. And of course, there's error bars around those values. But some teams, probably the Astros, for example, have a value in every single player. And so the Astros can look at this and say, I'm going to trade this $2 million player for $3 million player and just keep going from there. And the only yeah. thing that would really stop you is that sometimes teams just don't want to be trading all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess if you wanted just an all-star and you don't care what kind of all-star or if he's actually that great, 
you could go for one of those fluky reliever seasons that ends up being an all-star season. So you could just collect a bunch of AAA arms or, you know, AAA starters who haven't been that effective, but maybe they'll be the one guy who, when you move him to the bullpen, he's suddenly amazing. So that is one way you could do it if you just want to check the all-star box, but that's maybe not quite what we're talking about here. Yeah, and just in closing, I can confirm something, uh, an example at least of a conditional draft pick in a trade. An example, this is from Quora. I think that's how that's pronounced. Let's assume that it's Mm -hmm. true. Thank you, Leo Ebars from March 11, 2016. An example would be the Donovan McNabb trade from the Eagles to the Redskins in 2010. The Eagles received the Redskins' number two pick in the 20th draft and a conditional pick in the 2011 draft. The Eagles will receive either the Redskins' number three or number four 2011 draft pick based on the following conditions. One, whether McNabb makes the Pro Bowl in 2010. Two, Mm. whether the Redskins make the playoffs in 2010. Or three, whether the Redskins win nine games in 2010. If one or more of the three conditions above comes true, the Eagles will receive the Redskins' third pick. If none of the conditions come true, they get the Redskins' fourth pick. So that's that. Uh It does exist. Baseball should have it too. Yeah, and baseball has incentive clauses, of course, in player contracts. You know, if you win this award or if you pitch this number of innings or get this number of plate appearances, you make more money. That's it's not the same thing, but it is a conditional outcome. So something like this could probably work. Yep. All right. Happy chatting. So that brings us to the end of this episode and this week's worth of episodes. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, signing up and pledging some small monthly amount. The following five listeners have already done so. Louis Uller, Christopher Lennis, Corey McMahon, Eric Oliver, and Cody Braun. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. If you listen to the show and you like the show, please say so. Tell people about it. Help us attract other new listeners. You can send emails to me and Jeff at podcast at fangraphs.com. Keep those questions and comments coming. You can also message us via the Patreon site if you are a Patreon supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope that you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. Bye.